Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Let's turn, if you would, to Psalm 36. Again, if you're somewhat new to Scripture, the book of Psalms right in the middle. And divided into chapters, and we're in the 36th chapter of the Psalms. Pastor Jeff provided a very helpful introduction to it. And uh, this psalm, maybe of all the psalms, I have a bunch of history with. When I was in seminary, and I'm in the middle of it, three years, so I think second semester of my second year, I had become convinced there of a view of humanity and of our sinfulness and of God's sovereignty that wasn't biblical. It was kind of just centered on us. It gave us more credit of our ability to deal with our own lives and to turn to Christ and that God seemed to be more concerned for meeting my whims than His glory. And one of my professors... Um, with the background, let's say, some C.S. Lewis, some Jonathan Edwards, some John Piper, maybe that's a name you're familiar with, taught me that the greatest good, the greatest love in the world is for God to be mostly concerned for His glory. And that if we are converted by God's grace, if we have new hearts that desire to hallow His name above all, that that is the source of our greatest contentment and joy. That the more that we live to please Him, the more pleased we'll be ourselves, actually. And that often our misery, our discontentment is selfishness and pride and turning from desiring to glorify God. In Psalm 36, particularly verse 8, was one of those, that here God is holding out a feast. Here God is holding out a a drink from the river of His delights. That God is very concerned for our happiness, but it's a happiness found in Him. And so Psalm, Psalm 36 became one of those places that was like a second conversion, I guess, for me. Uh, a reorientating of my life, my view of life, my view of God and myself that changed me. I'm very grateful for it. It's very attractive. It's alive. That's one of the things I love about the Psalms. They're not half-hearted. They're not uh, measured. (laughs) They're not pulling punches. They're not trying to say what's true and keep you happy. I think this is one of those. So I hope that it's helpful to you. I hope Hope that it will help you to see that there is sin in this world and it's awful. And yet God's righteousness, God's justifying us by His grace is the greatest joy you could ever know. Knowing God is the greatest joy you could ever know. You've said that, heard that before in church, haven't you? Do you believe it's true? And do you actually believe that it's true? Pastor Jeff said that seeing God's righteousness is like, or his trustworthiness is as high as the clouds. I find that difficult to believe. But it's true. All right, let me read this psalm. It's in three parts. There's three parts of this psalm. 
will take each part in turn. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's ask God's help. Father, you are the greatest good in the world. Blessed are you. Please now teach us your word. It's holy. Give us grace that we might listen to your word with our hearts, with our whole hearts, and seek you and not stray. Your word is eternal. Your word is true. May it be a delight to us, and so may your Holy Spirit so work within us that we will never forget your word. Amen. Let me again draw your attention to the title of the psalm. The psalms are a bit different in that we not only have the actual text of the song, but often the title given, and the title is inspired scripture along with the actual song. So to the choir master, that is literally given or for, given to the excellent or lead or chief musician. Now you've heard us say many times that the Psalms are songs and they're given to God's people to sing. And so we sang one and you sang it a bit awkwardly because we hadn't sung it before and it's a little different language. But we're trying to find singable song, Psalms. And I wanted to point out here that This specifies that David wrote it to be given to the lead, the chief, the best, the top, let's say, the head musician. Now, does that mean then that it's not for anybody else? Well, of course not. But it again shows us that there is divisions even within the people of God. Now, there's the egalitarianism of our equality before God's grace. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. As far as you qualifying based on your sex, your socioeconomic status, your height, anything, to come to Christ. And yet, within God's people, there's differences. There's people who can lead and sing very well. And we need them to lead us. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't sing. I wanted to bring that up because right at the front of this psalm is another incredible division. Transgression speaks to the wicked. Turn, if you would, back to the first psalm. This is a constant division in the psalms of 
pervasive theme. The division between the wicked and the righteous, the ungodly and the godly, the damned and the saved. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his laws he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. You know what's going on in verse 4, but not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Wicked and righteous. The wicked and the righteous. Now, how do we think about that? Are any of you righteous? Are any of you wicked like what we read in here in Psalm 36? Are any of you without any fear of God at all, flattering yourselves that will never be accounting for your sin, you'll never be held to account before God that all you think about is the trouble you'd like to do, even on your bed at night, you just dream and think about what dastardly deeds you're going to do the next day. Is that you? So how do we think about this? How are you to think about this? Well, there is this division in the world between those who are gods and those who are not. Those who love and see their need for Christ and those who do not. There are those who do not desire to live at all for God's glory and those who do desire to live for God's glory. It is true. I wanted to bring that up again because there is something that we hate in this world and it is any kind of plain speaking. Any kind of total, 100% decisive, not speaking without degrees kind of thing. And hear the psalm right away. Transgression speaks to the wicked. There is this division. This psalm is not nuanced. It's not being careful. It's a either or. There's not degrees here. And so we have the wicked. This is jarring. The wicked of the, are those who care not for their souls and that they'll face judgment before God. Now what David is doing here is rather interesting. There are some places in the Bible, like I read in the time of confession from Psalm 14, or we could look at Romans 3, where you kind of get this doctrinal description of sinfulness. No one is good, no not one. Right? It's just doctrinally precise. It's giving you truth that's you could take a short answer to a multiple choice. How wicked is man? Like you could pick the right one very plainly. This though almost takes somewhat of a psychological look. David is thinking about sinful man without God's grace, sinful man if left to himself. And wondering, I wonder what is really going on within that kind of person. What's in their heart? What do they say to themselves? What are they hearing within from their own flesh, even from sin? So it's very interesting. Transgression speaks. See that? 
David is listening, if you will, to what goes on within the wicked human heart. What is the music they're listening to within themselves? They listen to sin. What does sin say? No accounting. There's nothing beyond yourself. This world is all that you see. There's no God in the heavens. There's no eternal creator who sees all. And You'll not reap what you sow. Do what you want. Whatever's right in your eyes, do that. It's just a lie. It's a human fabrication to keep you under the thumb of the man that there is an actual right in this world and that there is actual judgment and justice. Just So he flatters himself. He's full of pride. He, that's what's going on within himself. He'll not be found out. So that's what David hears. That's what David sees. Now why does David consider these things? Who enjoys that? Well, some of you do. You like psychological dark novels or movies. You do find it helpful or fun to look at the depravity of man. You enjoy those things? I don't mean that like negatively. What, what help could you gain from having the faith to look at how deep the darkness of you can go. What help does David get from this? Well, you can see as he goes on to the second section, the help he gets is to look at God's great grace. That's, that's a help. Because these first four verses are you left to yourself. You, God removing his restraint, this kind of, common, gracious, restraining of your wickedness. It's God like, hands off, have at it. How about if you did that to your kids at home? You and your husband or you and your wife sit down and say, honey, for the next week, there's no rules at home. There's no discipline. There's no nagging. There's nothing. We're just going to let the kids have at it. Whatever they want to eat, whenever they want to eat it, whatever they want to watch, whenever they want to watch it, Whatever they want to play, whatever they want to listen to, let's just just let them go and see what happens. What would happen? Well, there'd probably be like a day or two of some trepidation on the behalf of the kids. How far can we go? And then it would be awful, wouldn't it? Why? Because we're sinful. Because we're bent to gratify our lusts. Because it's all about me, baby. It'd be terrible. It'd be conflict. They wouldn't go to sleep. They'd be miserable people. And so when you see the place you could go to, you know the thoughts you think. You ever had a newborn child that's been screaming for two days? What thoughts do you start thinking? And so seeing again what God has saved us from Allows in verse 5 to say, your steadfast love, O Lord. Thank you. That's one good that comes out of it. Second, it just, it's true. It makes sense of life, doesn't it? This is one of the things that I find most attractive about 
God's word about Christianity, it's true. It makes sense of things. I love that God doesn't lie to us. He doesn't soften. He's honest with us. It also helps you live well in this world. I don't know if you know, but you don't live in a garden. You live in Sodom. Do you know that? There is actual evil in this world. There is actual darkness in this world that you have to protect your wife and children from, that you shouldn't invite into your home. You are to live in this world with your eyes open, not your eyes shut. You shouldn't be surprised when you go to work tomorrow morning and it doesn't go well. And your supervisor is playing politics behind the scenes and not treating you as you deserve. Like, why would that surprise you? And so Jesus tells us that we're supposed to like be innocent as doves in this world. We are not to indulge in the sin of this world, but we're supposed to be shrewd as snakes. Supposed to live as we see it. But then also... We don't get to hide in this world. Our calling as Christians is to make disciples of those who love sin and hate God. We are to not hide the truth as under a bushel, like a light under a bushel basket. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're to proclaim God's truth. We're to prayerfully engage the people we know in this world and our families and our workplaces and our schools in our lives who are dead in their sins and trespass without hope of God in this world. You're actually supposed to engage in this world as it is for the glory of God by calling people who do not love Him and who have sinfully dead hearts to life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so the people that you dearly want to see come to Jesus don't want to come to Jesus at all. Do you know that? Now, it would be very nice to go to work tomorrow and somebody say, hey, what do I have to do to go to heaven? That'd be great. And that could happen. You could pray for that. Do pray for that. But mostly you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to F this and F that and that person did this and that person did that. Right? You're just going to meet all kinds of sin and you are there in order to live in such a way and hopefully have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in such a way that that person is changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how are you going to do that? Well, the gospel is God's power unto salvation. Not your slick presentation, not your perfect words, not your salesmanship, but your life and your faith willing to call them from sin to faith in Christ. So we have this first four verses, the great depravity of man, and it's true. This is true. And then he shifts very abruptly like a 15-year-old at a manual transmission for the first time to just reveling in God, to delighting himself in God. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends the heavens. So it can be a terrible thing to consider the darkness of the human heart, to look at this world and become so disheartened and depressed that Calvin says that David wills himself deliberately to a different theme in order to recover himself. He elevates his thoughts to God. 
And so in these next four verses, five, six, or five verses through nine, he's just delighting himself in God. He is focusing his heart, his attention, his mind on the truth of the glory and beauty and loveliness and power and justice of God. Now he knows God, that's evident here, isn't it? He knows him. He has these truths that are true about God of what he's like and what he's done that he can draw on very intimately in order to delight himself in that God. That some of you know things with great depth and intimacy. We have some guys here who work for UPS and you know intimately the inner workings of package delivery. Some of you can take apart an engine with your eyes closed and know every part, its name, where it goes, and what it's for. I find that thrilling. You can actually delight in it. Some of you know your children with such depth and intimacy, and if you think on them, it can bring you great delight. David knows God with depth, with intimacy. And that knowledge of God, that experience of God allows him to draw on it and experience delight. This is a great problem with Christians, isn't it? We think it's enough to just come to Jesus. We think it's enough to just have been converted, have said some magic words, have prayed a prayer, and then we just kind of coast in ignorance and don't really do the work to know God and then wonder why we don't experience the joy that we see in places like this. And so, by way of exhortation or rebuke, you will not at all regret time and attention of knowing God. Because there's actually joy in Him, delight in Him, that is greater than any other joy and delight that you could know in this world, and particularly in the world to come. Did you know that? It'll be worth your time. It'll be worth the effort. It'll be worth the other things that you said no to in order to know God. Isn't this part of taking up your cross and following Jesus? That you say no to things in order to know Jesus. Now I know that the lack in your life isn't that you're such a dullard that you don't ever want to know anything with any depth or intimacy. Because there's some things that you guys know really well. That you give yourselves to knowing. Some of you know all of the snowmobile models and makes and trails and you've given yourself to knowing snowmobiling. And it brings you a certain joy and delight. Praise God for it. How about God? Do you want to know Him? He is a fountain of life. He is a feast that's full. He is a drink of a river that makes you as glad as you could ever stinking be glad. Knowing Him, knowing His justice, knowing His righteousness, knowing His love. Do you believe that, I wonder? One of the 
things pastors wrestle with is we got to go to verses like this, texts like this, and you guys are thinking, this is just baloney. I've known God for a long time, and it's never been like a drink out of a river of delight. And so you just kind of read texts and this in the Bible and kind of go, eh. I don't know how to help you. I've thought about that. I, I want to smack you. I think it's probably that you just love the world a whole bunch and don't have much love for God. I think that's the problem. Probably. You're so proud. That's what's going on. It's not that Christianity is a joke. It's not that there isn't real delight in God. It's that your heart loves so many other things more than it loves God and you struggle with that. But it's always somebody else's fault, right? It can't be you. It's got to be the church. It's got to be your pastor growing up. It's got to be your family of origin. It's got to be something else other than you. Right? It can't be you. Can it? Not at all. It just can't be you. Have I hit that hard enough? It can't be you. Maybe it starts with repentance. Maybe it starts with you coming to God sincerely and saying, God, I have loved so many things other than you. I have loved the things that you've given me more than you, the giver of them. I have given my time and attention and heart to this and to that and to this and to that. I love my sin more than I love you. But I want to love you. I'd like to drink from this river. I'd like to eat at this feast. Would you please be merciful to me? Would you please have pity on me? I'd like to know that you're steadfast love is like the heavens. And God will never put to shame those who seek Him like that. So let's start there. Now, do know that knowing God in this way, it, it's a family. It's a welcome. It's, it's not a, a panic room or a dark bunker. You see how he describes it here? He's delighting in attributes of God. He's delighting in God's love. He's delighting in God's faithfulness. He's delighting in God's righteousness. He's delighting in God's justice and judgment. And those truths of God, those attributes of God are likened to him as like sitting down at a Thanksgiving feast with the best people in the world that you love. It's like going for a walk in the, some of you have been telling me in Wausau, the Dells of Eau Claire, is that what they're named, Raj? Yeah, this is beautifully delightful place. It's refreshing and it's cool and it's glorious and knowing God is like those things. And so reorient your mind to what it's like to know and walk with God. It's, it's not a whole bunch of no's. There are no's. But there's always no's because there's greater yeses. It's not like living in the world constantly afraid when the bombers are coming and you've got to hide. It's like living at a ranch with a beautiful log home and there's always good food and there's lots of animals and deer and rivers and ponds and it's glorious and every day is 70 and sunny and it's beautiful. That's, 
the psalmist's description of knowing God. Why? Why is it like that? Because we deserve hell. And we've been given heaven. Because we deserve misery and we've been given forgiveness and life. Right? You get that? Because God is our protector. Our provider. So one of the reasons we struggle to experience and believe this is because we still hold on so tightly to the lie that we're good people. And so God's grace isn't a feast to you because you deserve it. You know, if you have a child in your house who thinks they deserve everything, they're often miserable to be around. Because nothing is good enough ever. Nothing is gratitude. It's all deserved. It's all earned. It's, in fact, they always deserve more. Very difficult people to be around. Maybe you're married to one of them. Maybe you are one of them. Where a Christian is somebody who knows, knows, knows. All that they receive from God is grace. And so it's always a feast. Even if it's, you know, just a McDonald's hamburger. Because you don't even deserve that. So you're very grateful for it. You see, see, this is a matter of your heart's perspective on what you deserve from God. And so everything is more than what you ever, ever, ever could imagine getting from Him. You get that? So this experience of knowing and living with God as if being welcomed to a mansion, there's a feast set for you, or walking in the park of a drinking from a river delight is because You don't deserve anything but His wrath and you've been given life. And so it's all the happiest day you could ever have because you don't deserve any of it. You see that? And so God is gracious to you and you're very grateful. And to have anything more is all 100% more than what you thought you'd ever get. And so you're grateful. That's what's going on in this psalm. That's why David just shifts so abruptly after the first four verses to this delightful meditation of God because that's who he was. That's what he was like. You know why he knows that guy in the first four verses very well? Because that's who he is. That's who he was apart from Christ. So do you love him? Are you enjoying him? Lastly, David moves from the delightful meditation and what it's like to walk with God. It's like this fountain of life. It's like living in the most beautiful light. One of the reasons we love up here, isn't it? The sunsets in the summer. <laughs> They're spectacular. It's like, that's what God's like to us. It's beauty. And it turns to a prayer, which is right, 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 right on. You've been meditating on God. The thing that you pray for is more. Oh God, continue your steadfast love. I don't want to leave this place of delight. I don't want to leave this feast. God, continue it, please. Don't let the wicked overcome us. Don't let us be under their thumb. So he moves from this experience of joy and considering God's mercy and grace and love to like, please don't stop. 
please don't let me be overcome. Please, God, I just want more of you. I've gotten a taste. I want a bite. I've gotten a bite. I want a mouthful. I've gotten a mouthful. I want a feast. I've gotten a feast. I want more. He ends with his prayer. And it's heartfelt, isn't it? Oh, continue your steadfast love, your righteousness, the upright of heart. So some of you in this world experience real injustice and difficulty. Maybe as a sibling in your home, you feel like one of your siblings gets more attention because of their troublemaking and their arrogance and you feel alone because of that or you wonder like, doing wrong. What about me? Maybe it's in your workplace. Those who play the game and backstab and do all that seem to get ahead. Or you who just does your work and does it well and does it honestly, doesn't. Maybe you've been the recipient of incredible injustice and sin. Here's a good prayer for you. This is teaching you how to sing to God in your disappointment and disillusionments and facing of injustices. Oh God, continue your steadfast love to me. Your righteousness, I'm upright of heart. God, don't let the arrogance step on me, please. Don't let the hand of the wicked drive me away. Now verse 12 is something of a proclamation of assurance and faith that what he just prayed is going to be. There the evildoers lie fallen. They will be thrust down, unable to rise. So he's assured. He has some assurance. What I want to urge you to is like, don't pray half-heartedly. Love him and beg him for more of it. Like pray with your guts, with your bones. Now that might be a really simple prayer. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's just, God, please, Give me some more. Bag him. But throughout this psalm, the main thread is justice. Do you see that? Justice. First four verses, you have the great wickedness and arrogance of man. Then you have this delight in God, and the main delight in God is his justice. And then the prayer is for more of justice with an assurance of justice at the end of it. Justice. That's a good thing to know in this world, isn't it? That there is justice coming. That all of the great wickedness we see in this world will be held to account. God will judge. And we as believers should take delight in that. Find comfort in it. So, one of the difficulties for you in taking delight in God's justice is that you misunderstand the doctrine of justification. Look at what he says there in this prayer at the end. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you, righteous to the upright of heart. Who's upright of heart? Aren't we taught as Christians, to always think that we are not upright of heart. Well, yes and no. 
There's no uprightness in you that will get God to save you. There's no obedience to God's law that will get him to love you. But he, in his infinite mercy, has forgiven you and is cleansing you of sin. And an upright heart still wrestles with sin. An upright heart is still going to have to confess sin. But you aren't what you were. And you do love God. Not perfectly, of course. You'd wish you loved Him a lot more. You do want to obey Him more. But that's us. This is a believer. This is a common believer. And so we pray this prayer truly. And we take comfort in God's justice. I can't, I can't wait for God's justice to come. Of course, that should terrify those of you without Christ, without assurance of Christ, shouldn't it? That God does see that there is nothing in you, in your thoughts, in your hearts, in your deeds, in your words that He does not see. He sees it all. Right? And so turn to Christ. Turn to His steadfast love. That's His love with which He forgives, His love with which He welcomes you though you don't deserve it. And so let's learn to rejoice in God's justice. Let's pray. Father, we do praise You for Your steadfast love, for Your faithfulness, that You are righteous, perfect, and every way pure. We praise You that You do judge and that You save both man and beast, O God. We praise You. Teach us to pray in light of this. Teach us to call on You to continue. God, help us to experience a relationship with You where it is like a feast, where it is like a drink from a river of delights. God, please give us this gift to know You more and to delight in You, to find joy and comfort. God, teach us to rejoice in Your justice, to flee from wrath to Christ, to deal with our sin rightly because you are a just God, to know that we will reap what we sow and yet in Christ we have only forgiveness and reconciliation. And so God, please help us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.